Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. But Max has so many wonderful things about him. He does lots of tricks, but what makes him a star is his enthusiasm and presence. He looks at you as if to say, here, you are my friend. I've been looking for you. And this makes him very popular, especially with patients. This program features the work of 2011 writer Deborah Jarvis. Curator Susan Rich spoke with her in an interview. I'm fascinated by your three different roles, chaplain at Seattle Cancer Care, working with Max at Swedish, and being a published writer. For you, what links those three jobs together? I think what links them together is hearing people's stories, hearing people's stories and finding patterns in their stories and being amazed at how people are healed in so many different ways. Does doing therapy with Max teach you something about paying attention to your surroundings that you can utilize in your writing? Absolutely. Max's thing always has been enter wagging. Anything, any room, the vet, you know, our house for the first time, a patient room, the cafeteria. And it doesn't mean that he's an idiotic, oblivious fool. It means that he's totally present. He's wagging. He's alert. He's like, what's going to happen? Who are you? What's going to happen now? What am I? What's, what's going to be here for me? And I think to myself, if I can be like that in every encounter myself, enter wagging meaning enter open, enter alert, asking, who am I going to become through this? What's going to happen to me? I'm curious. This this kind of alert curiosity that he has, it's been a tremendous model for me, a tremendous model. Now we'll hear a selection from Deborah's live reading. This is the introduction and a little bit of the first chapter of my book, Enter Wagging, Advice from a Therapy Dog. Enter wagging. I learned this from my dog, Max. He's a 15-pound Cairn Terrier, like Toto in The Wizard of Oz, and he enters wagging into every situation, every room, including the vet's office. This doesn't mean that he is stupidly happy or oblivious to what is going on. In fact, it means the opposite. When he enters wagging, it means he is open and present and curious. He's not worrying about the past or what might unfold. He's just right there with what is. This was the first thing I learned from Max. So whenever I start to tense up and contract, I picture Max alert and wagging. And he's really easy to visualize because he's wheat colored and has black ears, (laughs) eyes like black marbles, and a black tip tail. People always mention his ears. One day, a guy in the dog park asked me, do you dye his ears? And I answered, nah, I just use felt pen. (laughs) So he's adorable, but he can be a pill. The biggest issue is the barking. Cairns are bred so that you can hear them barking when they're chasing an animal underground. So their bark has to be loud and piercing. If he sees a squirrel, 
he goes into an ear-bleeding, out-of-control frenzy that makes a heavy metal concert seem like a Gregorian chant. And once he gets into that level of red alert, nothing, not even bacon, will stop him. (laughs) But here's the thing. Loving a dog is like loving a human. Both are package deals. You take the good with the bad. A friend once asked me, how can you put up with that barking? And I thought, the same way I put up with you always being late. But I didn't say that. (laughs) But Max has so many wonderful things about him. He does lots of tricks. But what makes him a star is his enthusiasm and presence. He looks at you as if to say, here, you are my friend. I've been looking for you. And this makes him very popular, especially with patients. Max and I do volunteer therapy dog work together. We visit hospice patients at home and kids at a pediatric unit at a local hospital. Now, when we started this work, Max had no agenda, but I did. I had just left a staff position as a chaplain at a big cancer center, so I figured I could do therapy dog work and still be a chaplain. What I didn't realize was that I had a different role and that Max was the main attraction. On our very first visit to the pediatric unit, I said to a mother, what's getting you through this? Now, this is exactly the kind of question that I would ask as a chaplain. By the look on her face, you would have thought I asked, are you ready for me to do your rectal exam? (laughs) And it was then that I realized that I was not a chaplain. I was just the lady with the dog. Chaplain wasn't my role, and my questions seemed nosy and inappropriate. It also happened with our first hospice patient, a 92-year-old woman named Martha. Now, as a chaplain, I was used to people launching into the most painful parts of their lives. And Martha started out by saying, We only had Jeff for six years. He died in a car accident. I just had a baby, and she cried all the time, and that's why Jeff ran away. Oh, how terrible for you, I said, taking her hand. What happened? Well, like I said, he ran away. Al found him dead in the road. I was horrified. One child born and one child dies? Martha, how did you get through that? I had a brand new baby to care for, so we just scooped Jeff up off the road and buried him in the backyard. This was my first clue that I may have misunderstood her, but I couldn't be sure. Oh, Martha, that's so sad. Tell me more about Jeff. He was a Jack Russell, a terrier like Max. She was crying now. That's tragic, I said, trying not to sound relieved. She nodded, yes, but I don't want to talk about it. Well, you can talk to me about it, I said. No, you brought Max for me. And there it was again. I was just the lady with the dog. At first, I thought this was evidence of my monstrous ego, and maybe it was, but it was also something else. After a couple of months, I couldn't deny feeling a deep grief after our therapy dog visits a grief about not using my gifts and skills. Having been a chaplain for so long, 
I was used to deeper, richer connections with people. And this whole therapy dog gig was not as gratifying as I thought it would be. So this is the story of someone trying to find her way once her best laid plans go awry. And this is the story about what Max and I learned from each other and how our early wounds can actually serve us later in life. And it's about how it really does make a difference if you enter wagging. But first, you should know how it all started. Before Max came to us, he spent every hour of his life in the front yard of a Seattle home. Not allowed in the house, he slept in a basket on the porch. His humans paid no attention to him. His saving grace was the neighbors who walked him and played with him. Miraculously, he was not psychologically damaged when we got him. He wasn't abused, but neglected. This is how it is with many of us. We weren't abused, but some part of us was neglected. And like Max, we experienced some kind of saving grace, a friend or a teacher who paid attention to that neglected part. Or we countered the neglect ourselves through books or art or music or food or drugs or sex. For some of us, those neglected places never got any attention. And they are like potholes in our souls that can jolt us into fear or anxiety or jealousy. They keep us from being present and open. But fortunately for Max, his neglect was countered by an unbidden outpouring of love and care. He didn't seem to resent his owner's inattention. He simply accepted love from whoever gave it to him. I met Max because a week after my mastectomy, my husband Wes and I were out walking. And Max was walking towards us with his neighbor, Amy. He made a beeline for us with that full body wag that said, love of my life, at last I found you. <laughs> we have since learned that he does this with anyone new. <laughs> but nonetheless, I was smitten. Oh, I cried, I love him. And she laughed and said, do you want him? <gasps> yes, I said this without hesitation. Well, she said, he's not really mine, but I'll ask his owner. And if you ever want to play with him, he lives in that house across from the Big Hedge. Just go over anytime you want. And that is how it began. Almost every early morning for two years, I walked a mile and a half to his house, went into his front yard, and played fetch with him. Here's the thing. For six months of those two years, I was on chemotherapy. And some days I felt really crappy. But I'd wake up and think, Max, Max, I can't wait to see him. I was like a teenager in love. When I thought of him, I felt an actual ache in my chest. And I did not mention this to my oncologist because she would have ordered an EKG or a CAT scan or something. But I knew it was my heart aching for Max. One morning I sat down on a bench in his front yard to tie my shoe and he jumped right up on the bench next to me and he looked into my eyes, a searching kind of look that cut right through me. And it was a look that said, please help me. 
get me out of here. And I looked back at him and said, I'm trying. I really am. And I really was. We had already offered to buy him several times. His owners refused. At one point, I said to Wes, I can't believe I cannot make this happen. And he laughed and said, I can't believe you think you can make it happen. (laughs) Yes, it was hubris that made me say this, but more than anything, I think it was sheer ignorance and naivete. I was used to working hard and making things happen. That's the American way, right? You can do anything if you set your mind to it, especially really good things. How could I not rescue this dog? Little did I know that this was actually another installment of my lesson on working harder doesn't make it happen. (laughs) Or in Lao Tzu's words, less and less effort is used as things arrange themselves. Harmonious action maintains control. Exertion upsets the balance. It seems that in the first half of our lives, it's all about effort and determination. But then, at a certain point, it's about letting go and going with the flow. And as he says, less exertion and more harmonious action. The trick is knowing the difference between the two. Well, it was clear to me that all my exertion was not helping, so I just let things go for a while. The second Christmas, after we met Max, his neighbor Amy called. They left for two weeks, she said. We've been taking him in at night, but we have to leave for a week. Is there any way you can take him? Well, I now know that I would be an excellent ambulance driver because I was over there before she had a chance to hang up. I bounded into their yard, and Max came running over to me. They had left an auto feeder on the porch and bowls of water all over the yard for him. As I was getting kibble from the feeder, he ran to one of the bowls to get a drink. And watching him, I thought, oh, my God, is he having a stroke? He was trying to drink from the bowl, but his tongue was all sideways. And I ran over to the bowl. It was a solid block of ice. Honey, I'll give you fresh water at home. And with that, I packed him up, and we had a dog at home for the holidays. Bliss. I made a little nest of blankets for him next to our bed. I walked him every day. We put up a little Christmas stocking for him. (laughs) On Christmas morning, we helped him pull a squeaky pork chop from his stocking. He shared in our Christmas turkey and got what I bet was his first bite of pumpkin pie. And then, on New Year's Eve, Amy called. They're coming home. You've got to bring him back. Sick about this, I put him in my car with his new squeaky pork chop. I felt as if I were driving to an execution. I mean, not to get all dramatic, but it is really similar to Cinderella going back to cleaning the fireplace after being at the ball. I put him back in his yard and I cried all the way home. And Amy called me again that night. After you drove away, she said, Max got up on the porch and howled like a woman keening at a grave. 
What had we done? Friends and family members were incensed. They insisted that we once again offer Max's family money for him. Over the next few months, they collected what we called the Max Liberation Fund. $1,000 for a five-year-old Karen Terrier. I was still seeing Max early in the morning, but I got the distinct feeling his owners really did not like seeing me. And I couldn't blame them. Who wants to wake up in the morning, open the curtains, and then see some strange woman in your front yard? <laughs> but I was filled with a yearning for Max that I thought would kill me. Waking up in the middle of the night, I never went back to sleep thinking about him sleeping outside. I was exhausted. I knew this whole thing had to stop. We couldn't go on this way. It wasn't good for either of us. I was tired of sneaking around. <laughs> I wrote Max's owners a letter offering them the $1,000 and telling them I wouldn't be coming over again. Never, ever, ever. I walked over one last time to get their address. I didn't want Max to see me, but as quiet as I was, he spied me and came bounding over the fence to his with his whole body wagging. Irresistible. One last time couldn't hurt. Now, this is the part in a movie where the secret lovers decide to have one last fling before they part forever, and then the cheated upon spouse comes home. And that is exactly what happened. Mrs. Max's owner drove up. She bounced out of the car, pointed at me, and said, don't go. I want to talk to you. My stomach curled up into a hard little hockey puck. I was not wagging. I was not open, alert, and curious. I wanted to die, and I think I peed a little. <laughs> My husband and I have talked, she said. He realizes this dog will never live in the house. So if you want him, you can have him. Okay, if you're still thinking about the movie parallel, this would be the scene of the cuckold spouse saying, here's the divorce paper, she's yours. Unbelievable, right? I thought so too. I could not have heard right, so I didn't say anything. And she said, well, do you still want him? And I said, yes, yes, let me pay you. And she said, no, no, please, just take him. So everyone got their money back, and we got Max. Letting go less exertion, harmonious action. And that is how our life together began. Sound Pages was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2011 curator of this program is Susan Rich. Music performed by Jess Raymond and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, Tom Stiles, and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, 
available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.